We are in John chapter 13, verse 36, FF, that means to the end of the chapter. The title of the message is Another Uncomfortable Truth. I want to give you some background, so you'll see a slide come up behind me, and you'll see Boise Bible College. That's one of our missions. We just prayed for them. We pray for them all the time. It's a solid undergraduate seminary, so we're, we're glad to support them. A similar college, Ozark Christian College, you'll see that symbol show up behind me. That's where I went, and you remember Scott Lurick, who came here and gave a presentation a few weeks ago. He also attended that one as well. And I want to give you some dates. You'll see them come up behind me. 1985 to 1989, that was my first little stint at Ozark Christian College. And then I went back in 1993. And what I would like to do, you'll see an arrow start swinging across the screen. It'll take a while before it creeps to where it's going. Because I'd like to talk about the time in between the 1989 and 1993. It's a time when the Lord chose to mature me. He's still working on it, by the way. But he's, he chose to mature me and kind of hit the fast forward button with a time that I was diagnosed with, I was con- diagnosed as being totally and permanently disabled. I had a child during that time. Stephanie and I also had, uh, Stephanie had a few miscarriages as well. It was a time where we struggled quite a bit and I grew up a lot. And during that time, things changed in the way I processed information. And so it was very different, that gap between 1985 and 1993. I was a very different student when I went back for one more semester. From 1985 to 1989, I had some fantastic professors. And when I went back, I took a couple of uh, pretty basic classes. And I'd taken very basic and complex classes before, but then I went back and took a couple of basic ones, and I learned so much more because I applied myself where I hadn't applied myself like I did when I first entered into the Bible college scene. And I wanted to tell you that information because it changed things. I want to show you another college, Lincoln Christian University. They've definitely changed a lot in the past year. I don't know if you know this, but several of the Restoration Church colleges have shut down. It's, it's alarming. Uh, you, it might have alarmed you when Puget Sound Christian College shut down. It did me. It's even more alarming that several more have. Well, Lincoln Christian University is still going. It's strong. But I wanted to bring that one up to you because it's similar to the others. I want to bring up a name of a professor there, Dr. J.K. Jones. Now, he was actually a graduate of Lincoln and then went on to some other colleges. Then he came to be a professor at Ozark Christian College. Here's what he looks like today, just in case you're curious. That's what he looks like today. He's older than he looks in the photo. He's a motorcycle riding, weightlifting kind of guy, and he really appeals to the rough crowds, surprisingly. 
But his main job at Lincoln Christian University is spiritual formation. He's kind of the spiritual giant there. While he was at Ozark Christian College, he was seen that way as well, and I studied one class underneath him, and I got him to speak at a church where I was preaching in Arkansas in my absence. And then I had a critic in the church who wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to make sure everybody knew how much of a fool I was. So he asked my professor, one of the classes, the basic classes I was taking, he asked him what he thought about me as a student in front of a crowd of people in the church. What he thought he was going to get was what I thought he would have gotten, and that is, he's such a loser, I can't believe he's taken any classes in seminary. Why is he even a preacher? That's the way I think about me. So that's what I thought he would say. But as it turns out, his thinking had been shaped by some unusual turns of events in my life because I had matured. I was the most mature one in the room as he taught. In fact, one of the tests that he gave out, he uh, walked up to the dry erase board and he said, I want everybody to know that our straight A student missed a question on the last test. And everybody's like, yes! So he went up to the board and he, and I knew he was talking about me, went up to the board and he drew a curve. So now that our straight A student who never misses a single question on the test, he missed one. So here's what the curve's going to look like. So those of you that made this grade, we're going to bump it up. And he made everybody aware. Then he handed out the papers. I looked at my paper and I thought, I need to talk to the teacher. <laughs> so when he said, are there any questions about your grades? Yep. He had a student grade the papers. And his student had never had Greek. And the question that I was asked, I answered it with the right answer in Greek. But his student grading the papers didn't know that was the right answer in Greek. So when I raised my hand, I said, can you look at this? He looked at it, and he goes, okay, forget the curve. The person who uh, missed one didn't miss one. My grader missed it. He actually gave a better answer than I was asking for. So everybody, we'll go, ahead and, we'll go ahead and bump your grades up, but our straight-A student did not miss one. And I ended up completing his class without ever missing anything on the test, which was because I was much more mature. I studied harder. I wanted to learn. In addition to that, I also had the president of the college's daughter sitting, always asking me questions to, you know, to simple things, but... I was mature, so I had learned. So his view of me was not what I thought it was. I thought he thought I was a loser. I thought he thought, well, he makes good grades, but he shouldn't be a preacher. I, I didn't know what he thought of me, but when, I was, when, when someone tried to highlight how much of a fool I was and said, what kind of student is he? He told them I was the best student he's ever had. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, See, if I'd have been told that in the 1985 to 1989, I would have been partying. I'd been taking people out. I'm the best student. I'm the best. But when he said that, I thought, he doesn't know me. I'm not the best student. I was very, very humbled by it, and I was grateful that he said that. <clears throat> Why did I bring you to all of that? He said this, the number one th rule in Bible study you want to know what he taught me? Something that stuck with me to this day. And he didn't come up with it. He got it from a, a same book I read. But he emphasized it. Context is king. 
That's the number one rule. In fact, it's the number one rule in reading, in studying anything. Read it in context. And that's going to be very important as we look at our text and some other text that goes along with it today. So with that said, last week we finished with, you'll see this uh, behind me, the last section of our text last week. John 13, 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's a powerful statement. And that's the way we wrapped up our studies last week with that section. I want you to look at this painting I showed you before. Up behind me, you'll see that. This is an artist's rendition of what's happening in the Last Supper. It's probably one of the more accurate ones, but I would like you to just take a look around the room. I don't know if you noticed, there's only 11 of the apostles, which means Judas is already gone. So at this particular point in time in this painting, its depiction of history, Judas has already gone to betray Jesus. Jesus already handed him the, the bread that he dipped, and he knew, go do what you must do. He sent him on his way to betray him. So now it's a more intimate moment with his 11 remaining disciples, known as apostles. And as you're looking at this, and I'm not sure how well you can see it from where you are, but don't click anything yet, JC. I want them to think about it. Look around, and who do you think is Peter? Don't click it yet, JC. Who do you think in that painting is is Peter. Now, I don't know. I didn't ask the artist, so I don't know. And I tried to read to find out. But here is my suspicion uh, at my best guess. You'll see the arrow now come in for Peter. He's the only one who is postured up. He is the only one who seems to be really thinking about something in a, at a different level than everybody else in the whole room. He seems to be really, think, really thinking and deep in thought about something. He's also kind of a bigger guy. So maybe, maybe that's Peter. I want you to just have that in your head. And the reason why I want you to have that in your head is because we're going to get back to this in a minute because of what Jesus is going to do to create this particular moment that is captured in this painting. And he's going to do it in our text. So let's pick up with verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Hmm. I wonder if that's the moment when Peter sat up a little bit more. What's he talking about? Our text continues, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, Peter is this way. He, 
He's pretty bold with his words. If you haven't learned this yet, it's hard to learn when you're talking. And Peter is one that tends to get ahead of himself sometimes. But he asked a question, and he asserted himself as the guy that will lay down his life for Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Just click the arrow and it'll do it. Oh, it didn't do it. It's supposed to be a rooster crowing. It didn't, didn't, didn't work. Worked on my computer. What is this about? Well, it's not real hard to figure out. When we, Stephanie and I, raised our kids on farms, we, one of the farms we lived on, we got some chickens, and they grew up, and one morning this chicken sounded like it was dying. It had never, it was a rooster, and it had never crowed before, and it was just coming into its own, and it was morning time, and it wanted to crow. Eventually it figured it out, and... We, we could, you know, be reminded when it's morning. Okay, we know it's morning. You know it's morning. But that's what the rooster tells you is it's morning. If you've been here at the church early in the morning, you've heard there are people around here that have roosters. That's all that means. What do you mean that's all that means? That means that by morning, Peter, you will deny me three times. Wow. Well, that's significant. So if we go to the next slide, you'll see why it's significant. And no rooster crow still. Um, What we're looking at is the English Standard Version's harmony of the four Gospels on the Holy Week. In particular, we've got Thursday that we're looking at in front of us. You've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are the columns that we have. And you have the upper room discourse. I don't know if you noticed, but you have the Passover meal last supper You see that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we don't have that mentioned in John. What we do have is a little bit more, and it gives us context to the whole story. That's why we have four Gospels. But pay attention to what what that chunk of Scripture is in John. It's John chapter 13, verse 1, to chapter 17, verse 26. Our text, and I, I just read, I don't know if you noticed, to the end of chapter 13. We'll get back to those verses in a minute. But we just basically started in that discourse. So he's in the upper room, and he's and some special things have happened. And we just wrapped up chapter 13, but we still got chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16 and chapter 17 to go before the rooster crows. This is a long discourse that Jesus has around this intimate setting at this table where Judas has already left. So he's getting none of this. But before Peter denies him three times, he's going to be sitting there at this table with the rest of the disciples, knowing that Jesus, who's already proven that he is the Messiah, knows that he's going to deny him three times. He just told Jesus, I would die for you. And The creator of the universe just told him, oh, well, really? You're going to deny me three times before morning. (laughs) 
That's a big thing. So I want you to look again at that painting again. You'll see it up behind me. <clears throat> and you're, you see where Peter is in the painting. Now think about that. So he's postured himself up, and now he's thinking, I'm going to deny him? I thought I would die for him. I'm going to deny him three times before morning. How is that going to happen? And as he's sitting there, I have a question I want to put in your head. What are they thinking? What are the different disciples thinking? Wow, Peter's going to do that? That's horrible. What is Peter thinking as he's sitting there, as Jesus is giving this long discourse of powerful words? My favorite chapter in all of John, we're getting toward it. Is coming in this discourse. It's right there. One of the most powerful things that Jesus ever says is in this discourse. I mean, the greatest thing that he's telling us to do, love one another, has already been said in this discourse. So what are they thinking? What is, what are, what is, as, as Peter's getting instructed over and over again, you know, with all these wonderful things in this long discourse, is it still playing out in his head? How am I going to deny him? I don't think I would do that. As Jesus is talking, is he, is he missing some things that he'll gather later? Has he not matured spiritually to the point where he'll actually learn more than he would have if he had been matured? Well, he's going to mature. And what about the others? Some of their minds going somewhere else while Jesus is giving them these powerful words. Are they also thinking, I can't believe it's going to be Peter. I would have thought he's our leader. I, how, why, why Peter? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have suspected that. I thought Matthew, he's a money guy just like Judas. Surely he would be one of the ones. You know, I don't know what they're thinking. But in this intimate moment, I can't help but ask the question. So I want to back up so that we get this in context all the way to the beginning of the discourse or the beginning of the events that chapter 13 start. I want to go all the way back to chapter 13, verse 1. I want to read that to you now. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Maybe you forgot. That's how it started. This whole thing, because you remember what happens next, you know. He, you remember all the wonderful things. I mean, he's, he is anointed with oil, you know, and then he washes their feet. That's what happens next. Um, and, then, and then, of course, Judas leaves. And then this discourse continues. It's a, it's a powerful thing to know he loved them to the end. It starts off, this whole discourse starts off with he's going to love them to the end. And he starts off by washing their feet. Don't forget that. The whole point behind all of this, he started off by showing them how to love one another, humbling himself and serving them. Instead of propping himself up, he is the creator of the universe. He is the savior of the world. He is the Lord, and he ultimately ends up being made king of kings. But he doesn't prop himself up. Instead, he humbles himself. Sets an example. This is how you love others. Now, some of 
the scholars out there that I respect, some of the authors, some, some that are already deceased that you have read, will speak about the Catholic Church, if they're not Catholic, in very negative ways. Every now and then, sometimes we'll talk about Catholic things. I will. I want you to know that I do not have a disdain for the Catholic Church. I do not think the Catholic Church is evil. I don't think that's some sort of a symbolism in, you know, of, of, of what we read in Revelation. I don't think that's about the Catholic Church and how evil it is. I don't think it's an evil empire. It's done a lot of good. The Catholic Church has fought for the rights of the unborn wonderfully, uh, fought for family, and done a lot of wonderful things. So, I don't condemn the Catholic Church, and please don't get me wrong when I say anything about the Catholic Church. But we're going to talk about some things because it fits our subject matter today. I'm going to talk about some Roman Catholic doctrines. You'll see two of them pop up behind me. The primacy of Peter, otherwise known as Patrine Primacy. Papal primacy, supremacy, and infallibility. I'll show you a painting, an artist's rendition you'll see right here. And this is where uh, someone has painted something that symbolically shows that Jesus is handing off the rule of his church to Peter. He's handing Peter the keys of eternity. That's what that's symbolizing. And this is the primacy of Peter. They, this is, there's a particular passage in the Bible where the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Peter became the first pope. And they believe, and we're going to look at this in a minute, they believe that it's clear in Scripture, and so that's what they teach. And this idea, it's a crazy thing. It carries on today. The Catholic Church believes that the Bishop of Rome, the Cardinal, the Pope, that he actually is the ruler of the church worldwide. And this concept of infallibility was added to how great the Pope is in a particular year. You'll see it pop up behind me, 1870. Not that long ago, they decided the Pope was infallible. I guess before that, he was fallible. I don't know. But... Anyway, I want to give you some more um, things about this particular subject. Here's a, another image. This is the current Pope Francis. And uh, he began his role in that capacity in March of 2013. So it's almost, it's like we're really close to the day uh, 10 years ago. Here's another image. You probably have, uh, wouldn't be able to guess who that is. An artist's rendition of Pope John Twelfth. You'll see his reign was from December 16th, 955, to May 14th of 964. Why did I show you that one? Because if the Pope was infallible, even though they didn't figure it out till 1870, uh, we have a problem. This is just one of the many popes, but if you read your history, you'll discover this particular pope actually used um, the Catholic Church to orchestrate orgies and things like that. He was a very, very wicked individual. Historically, that's what he was. There's a lot of strange things that have happened through history, and maybe you've learned them, and I don't have time to give them all to you, but at one particular time, uh, 
uh, Theodosius made it uh, the rule that you had to be a member of the Catholic Church. The emperor, Roman emperors, you have, everyone has to be a member of the Catholic Church. And what that did is it flooded the church with non-believers who didn't believe in Jesus, didn't believe in the Bible. Now they're church members, official church members. And if you stay long enough, you wind up in leadership and you start making decisions and evil stuff creeps in because people who don't even know the Lord are in leadership. And that's what happened. What is a pope? You'll see uh, behind me, it, it means father. It's just a, another way of saying papa, pope. My Bible and your Bible says when Jesus was telling us, woe to the scribes and Pharisees, how bad they were, these, these people that have propped themselves up, he's trying to tell people, don't, don't esteem them. In fact, he goes so far, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus said. Is he saying you can't call somebody dad or daddy? No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about don't prop one person up as the ultimate ruler that you must adhere to everything they say. Don't do that. Because that's what the scribes and Pharisees were trying to have everybody do. You do what we tell you. They were taking the law and they were interpreting it and adding to it in ways that God never intended. And Jesus said to them, don't ever prop up somebody so high that you're calling them the father. So it's not okay. I, I, have, I interact with a lot of priests. You know, the, you're supposed to call them father. No, not according to scripture. You're not. Let's look at the passage where the Roman Catholic Church says that Peter became the first pope. This is their argument. There's two passages, but we'll look at Matthew's account, and then we'll look at Mark's. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others... Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And it continues. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, I want to show you what the English Standard Version says in its footnote. Your Bibles might have the same thing. The Greek words for Peter and rock sound similar. And when those of us who don't know Greek hear that, we think, well, he called Peter um, the rock when he was talking about the church. That must have been what he did. 
So let's look at the text in a different way. I'm going to split it for you. The next slide, you'll see it split. And then I want you to see the Greek actually as it is written. And here's how you say it. Suai Petros Kai Epitalte Te Petra. So, and if you look at that, those two words, Petros and Petra, they are different. And if you scour the internet, and you do know the internet is not always right, but as you scour the internet and read from Greek scholars or look at your books, that's even better. Go to the library, however you want to do it you will discover there is no conclusive anything in the Greek that determines where the two words that both mean rock, but they are different, they have different endings, uh, where they're pointing. So in other words, is it referring, is the one referring back to Peter or is it referring to something else? What we do know conclusively is that it's worded in such a way that Jesus is talking about a physical rock. He's talking about Peter, and he's talking about a physical rock, but does, he, does the Greek tell us where this physical rock is pointing back to? It doesn't. It's not conclusive. He's talking about Peter, and he's talking about a physical rock in the same sentence. Two different things, but surely they're connected somehow, because even if the Greek doesn't connect it, what are they, how are they connected? What, what are they connected to? Why did he say these things? Well, how about we step away from the Greek for just a minute and just use some contextual stuff? How about we go back to context is king, since we can't find the answer in the Greek. The Greek is not going to tell us. He specifically, when he says the rock, he's talking about Peter. It doesn't. There's no conclusion to that at all, whatsoever. <clears throat> but he did use words that sound similar. They both mean rock. They're just they're different enough where they, you can't conclusively say he was saying that, Peter, you are the rock I'm talking about. It's not, that's not true. You can't, you can't prove that. But if you contextually go back and look at the conversation that was happening, don't forget, the last thing he said was, don't tell anyone that he's the Christ. That's the last thing Jesus said. Okay, now let's go back and look contextually just before when he asked, who do you say that I am? In Matthew 16, verse 16, the answer that Peter got right was, and God gave it to him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then at the end, remember this little short section, Jesus says, don't tell other people. When he commended Peter, he was commending Peter for getting the right answer. God gave it to him. You got it right, Peter, but God gave it to you. Don't tell anybody. And he renamed him Rock. But the rock that is not conclusive about what it goes back to in the Greek is conclusive contextually. The foundation of it all isn't Peter. It's that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is not rocket science. Isn't that the gospel message? That he came and he died for us. He's the Messiah who saves us. Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Christ means. The son of the living God. Yes, that is the solid message we get out of our Bibles. It's the good news. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter, you got it right because God gave it to you. But the Catholic Church would say, well, let's see. But Jesus was making him the Pope right then. 
Well, why didn't the Bible say that? It doesn't say that. And nothing that happens after this implies that. In fact, let's go ahead and read in context. We'll pull in Mark's account. Who is Mark? John Mark. John Mark is the guy that was Peter's traveling companion. And it's crazy that he actually included, because he was inspired by God to include, a little bit of a dark part of the history. So we'll look at Mark's account. We'll go ahead and read it. This is what happens right after this, what we just read. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, be, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus. <laughs> but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus turned and saw Peter's disciples. He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Could Jesus have been addressing his own disciples? Absolutely. All of them saw Peter as a leader. And Peter was rebuking Jesus. Don't say you're going to be killed. Don't do that. And so right after, if it's true, if the Catholic Church is right, that, that Peter was just made the Pope, it's not a really good PR for Jesus to look at the disciples and say, i got to rebuke this guy in front of everybody. Get behind me, Satan. If that was said to the first Pope, that's a problem. And it certainly tells us those that we call popes are not infallible. Because Peter made a big mistake right after he got the right answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then rebuked Jesus shortly thereafter and was told, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking the way I want you to think. You've got the things, the wrong things in your head. I need you to have the things of God in mind. Okay. Thank you for following that little rabbit trail so we could clear things up a little bit. The message today, John 13, verses 36 to the end of the chapter, another uncomfortable truth. It ends with this verse. This is John chapter 13, verse 38. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I want you to look back at that painting again. You can see the one that I think is Peter, who's postured up, seems to be thinking about things differently than other people. <laughs> Maybe it's because he was confronted and was told, you, <laughs> you, you think you're going to die for me? You're going to do that? Well, you're going to deny me three times before morning. It looks to me like he's thinking about that, struggling with it. And when we asked the question earlier, what are they thinking? I want to ask you the question, what are you thinking? In a, in a time where you can be pulled into an intimate moment, like in church, things can happen and you can easily get distracted. The rooster didn't crow like it was supposed to. I had it all set up. It's going to be so cool. And some of you would have jumped because I know you. Um, Joe went dancing over there. Made us all our heart race, you know. 
Um, and those things, we, we, we think about it. We wonder, are you okay? You know, that's what I'm thinking as I'm preaching. Other people are thinking this, you know, and so we got our minds in different places. We have an intimate moment, and we read this about Peter. We read that, you know, and he ends up, we all know, he ends up being a very powerful leader. He's not the Pope, but he ends up being a very powerful leader. And he does die for Jesus. We know historically. But we come in here, and some of us, as we got out of our car, we were still thinking about other things that we brought in here that we've been thinking about. It's been distracting us. There's, there's family issues, work issues, health issues, financial issues. There's things that are in our heads, and it, and it, it distracts us. In an intimate moment when you can, you can tell, you can feel it, you can, you can sense that God is trying to pull you close. He's trying to reach out and pull you closer to Him. And even then, we're postured up a little bit and we're thinking about something else. Maybe a different way and go in a different direction. Jesus wasn't stiff-arming Peter. When He told him, you're going to deny me three times before morning. He wasn't pushing him away. He was just telling him the truth. And it was uncomfortable. And as a preacher stands on the stage and says these things, sometimes we're distracted when he, we think, when he said things about family and work and finances and, and health and things. You could even be sitting next to someone who necessarily, because you know they're there, you think they're thinking that I'm thinking. You just All these things, these distractions go on. Jesus is not stiff-arming you by telling you the truth straight up. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a preacher. Maybe it's a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it's an elder. Maybe it's just another church member. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's through the mouth of a child. And something is said straight to you. Jesus isn't trying to stiff arm you. He's trying to give you the uncomfortable truth. He's trying to pull you closer. Can't you tell? Let's pray. God, thank you so much. So many times we, we need to grow up a little bit. And sometimes it takes hard things to get us there. Lord, sometimes you say things to us different ways. And we don't like it very much. And we know you love us. Sometimes you tell us things we don't want to hear. Sometimes as you're, you're pulling us closer to you, we, we don't want to go the direction you're trying to get us to go. But we know you love us. And we're sorry when we don't reciprocate. So as you're trying to pull us closer, Lord, show us how to reach back. We thank you for your uncomfortable truths. In Jesus' name, amen.